And so here is Hebrews 10, the assurance we have of faith given by this baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. In verse 5, the writer of Hebrews is trying to hold the church back from falling into cult-like behavior, false church behavior, returning back to the old uh, patterns of uh, Old Testament worship, which after the resurrection of Christ is no different than a Jehovah Witness or any other cult in the world. The Jewish system of worship is as vacuous as any other man-made religion now. And so he's not saying, oh, you just need to update your software system to 2.0. It's called Christianity. He's saying, no, because Jesus Christ has cracked the cosmos by the resurrection of his own flesh, everything of these types and symbols and shadows of the Old Testament are gone. And to hold on to them is to hold on to death. It's a pivotal point. You can see why it would be helpful to read here to say, well, what is the real church now? In between these two realities. Diving into the depths of this now, we'll see a beautiful image of how we know what the true church is by its baptismal waters. He says this as he's arguing with them to try to keep them from falling away from the faith and entering into a false church with a false, false system of worship. Consequently, all the things he's previously said, when Christ came into the world, he said, And he quotes Psalm 40. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in the scroll of the book. A prophetic prophecy from Psalm 40, he says. Saying, don't do sacrifices. There's a body prepared pointing to Jesus. He explains and says, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish a second. And by that will, we have been sanctified, made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, talking about the Old Testament priests in the temple. Repeatedly, the same sacrifice is offering, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made his footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, and now he quotes Jeremiah 31, the most pivotal portion in the whole testament about the new covenant the new covenant of which we call the church the new testament ourselves this is the covenant that i will make with them jeremiah prophesied after those days declares the lord i will put my law on their hearts and i will inscribe i will write them upon their mind then he said 
and I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. True forgiveness. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, your invitation is, let us draw near with a true heart and the full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works and not neglecting to meet together. This is about the church, of course. To meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, that is the old covenant, dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And here's the fearful thing. How much worse the punishment do you think will be deserved by those who trample underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the new covenant by which he has been sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, quoting Deuteronomy 32, Vengeance is mine and I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, this is a sermon entitled, How Baptism is a Gift to Bring a Full Assurance of Faith. Full assurance. Full, when I say assurance, I mean, I mean confidence. A confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's remarkable that this passage ends with something that is absolutely um, petrifying. The idea of dying without mercy. And that's a very clear warning that the scriptures have just presented before you this morning, is that it is possible. If so, it was true with Moses, the law of Moses, that you could die without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses, the rigid system of the law, the structure in which your sins will fall upon your head simply and purely, then you would die without mercy. And you would say, well, yes, that's the Old Testament law. Yes, but then the next verse says, how much more so for us? That if we neglect not Moses, but in this particular case, the new covenant of Jesus Christ, even a more clear, more substantial, more fuller, picturized way of salvation. If you don't have room for that in your heart, the warning is just doubly sincere, doubly severe. The pivotal passage is verse 22, where there's the clearest reference to baptism. Let us draw near, he says, with a true heart, and here it is, the full assurance, the full conviction of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean of an evil conscience 
and our very bodies, the reference to baptism, the physical body, passing through the purified water. Saying this, this is how you know if it is true for you. God has given the church a visible word. A word that can be seen. See, all words are symbols, auditory symbols. I'm communicating to you through symbolic language or reading symbols, ink squiggled on paper. But there is also, there is also the pictorial symbol, which is just as valid form of communication. That there are two particular pictures, not sentimentalized to say, I think when we do something fancy in the church like this, uh, it makes me feel good, so we should have a tradition in which we always have white flowers in the church because it makes me think of all my sins being gone. And I would say, praise God, that's good. That seems like a good idea. White seems clean. But that's not for the church. That, that could help you. But there's only two particular things on the command of the Lord Jesus Christ. These pictures are meant to be prophetic. They are normative, authoritative, prophetic pictures for your mind to give you the freedom of peace, of a full conviction that you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. See, the idea of these symbols or ceremonies, all throughout the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, it was symbols and symbols and ceremonies and cleaning animals and clean sacrifices and washing yourself and going to the temple and wearing the right clothes and having the priests and the hats and the turbans. There are so many, right? Because the purpose of ceremonies is to express an image of something that is not entirely complete. Stepping outside of what the church is, and you just think of what what marriage is. Marriage is nothing more than a ceremony of covenant between one and the other. But that marriage has literally just begun. Tomorrow, it continues. The vows to love, the week later, continue. The vows to love... 40 years later, continue. The marriage is not complete, so there is a ceremony associated with it. We don't just simply get married as if we just order something through a drive-thru. We know that it's more than that. It's the rest of your life trying to make this good on what you said you would do. Well, you see, it's that way with all the Old Testament. The reason there are all these symbols and images is because so much of it was left to be undone. It had not been finished. And you say, well, why don't we have all those symbols and priests and sacrifices now? Because where the substance of it comes, there's no need for ceremonies anymore. It's silly. But we're not done. The Lord Jesus must return. And you and I will be absolutely perfect and incapable of sin someday. So it's not done. But boy, he has accomplished a lot. Therefore, the ceremonies remain, but they're much simpler and much more few. Baptism and the table. All of those consolidated to two left. And intuitively, these institutions of these baptism and the Lord's table really make sense when you think about it. All the church has to do now, until the arrival of Jesus Christ, is to clean people up for supper. That's it. I was working in the basement a few weeks ago, and it was dirty and dingy. Heather said the dinner was ready. 
And there was no way I was going to eat dinner without washing my hands. It was not a really good thing I was doing down there. And that's it. Onward and upward. Outside of the church, secularists and everyone functioning within our world system loves to progress, loves to go onward, better, more, money, technology, faster. But in the church, we do progress. But we're not going onward only. We're going upward. These sacraments are upward. There is more happening upward. We are being, the verses, draw near to God. There is a true and living way to go up. Beginning of the Bible, they wanted to build a tower to go up. But Enoch humbly walked onward low with his God. He walked humbly. He didn't try to build his man-made religion tower. He walked with his Lord. And what happened? Rapture. The Lord took him up. That's what these sacraments are. They are bringing you up to the Lord. Because it is true. It is not complete that we are perfectly cleansed. Therefore, the water symbol remains. And I promise you there will be a meal you will eat. And it's going to be better than anything I've ever given you here. And it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that is not yet. Therefore, we have the symbol still. For ceremony remains where the substance has not been reached. Yes, but there is much that has been accomplished. We see here in Jesus Christ this image of a man who is the first, the first sacrifice to God and the final sacrifice to God. It says, when Christ came into the world, it said, sacrifices and offerings you do not desire, but a body you prepared. Burnt offerings and sin offerings, you don't take any pleasure in those, Lord. And then the prophet says, see, behold, I come to do your will, O God. And you could say, well, I know that the Lord actually has commanded sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings. I can flip over to Leviticus in my Bible and read those actual commands, you see. No, but the point is, he's saying, all those were ceremonies. They were symbols. They didn't satisfy as much as the communion bread you eat here. What does that satisfy? It doesn't. Because there is a satisfaction to come. All those animals, all those sacrifices, of course, that is not what God truly desired. God does not need to eat cows. They weren't worshiping like ancient pagans in which they actually thought they were offering food to their God. But a body you have prepared for me that I might do your will. That is, it was all pointing, all the animals, all the sacrifices, all the priests and the cleansing was pointing to this one reality of redemption that God has prepared is that he would have a man come down into this world and live to the Father's good pleasure. That he would be a fragrant offering wafting in the face of his Father. That he would be able to say, the first and the last man to actually offer up a life pleasing to God. I've come and I've offered my life for you. 
the sacrifices are over because the reality has been satisfied. True, I mean, perfect righteousness. The full assurance of faith, of knowing that you are right with the Lord, can never, can never be satisfied upon your life. You can never know your conscience. The particular verse, of course, he says, having your conscience sprinkled uh, clean, your evil conscience sprinkled clean by the waters of baptism. Of course, the water doesn't clean. The water is connected to the one who actually did the will of God in his whole course of life. It says this particularly. He's done away with the first in order to establish a second. Verse 9. What does he mean by that? He did away with the ceremonial law. Put it all away. Wrapped it all up in a tight little bow and offered his true body and flesh on that cross. To establish a second, which is what? The very pleased moral will of God. That all of Jesus Christ's inclinations and righteous behaviors of his heart, not just the body itself that was offered, but the whole life that was lived in that body was offered up. And that is what pleased the Lord. That is what tied away all the sacrifices. And so this law we call a ceremonial law, all the laws of the Old Testament that dealt with sacrifices and priests and cleansing and temple, is a redemptive law. These were the laws particularly oriented, not just like the laws of like we should uh, not steal or not kill each other and these Ten Commandments and these moral laws. There was a particular type of law in the Old Testament that had to do with ceremonies. It was the upward laws. It was, yes, I know I shouldn't steal, but if I do steal, what do I do about it? How do I not die without mercy? Well, that's the whole section of the laws called the redemptive laws for God to redeem you from your sin. All the laws that were not just about on, uh, onward, horizontal type of thinking, but upward laws, upward laws of sacrifices offered only by priests who were clean. And there's all this transcendent ceremonial cleanliness and, and all that was there in the laws. And it's all wrapped up and done away with because one actual fragrant life has been offered that pleased the one true Father God. One fragrant sacrifice wafting to the face of the Father that actually satisfied a human life well lived according to God's will. This was the first time it has ever been done and it is the last time it will ever be done. Hence, no more. Right? It is the first time because it says every priest daily tried to do this. Repeatedly offering the same sacrifice that never could take away this kind of sin. And it's the final sacrifice because then he says Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin. And then he sat down. It's done. Not getting up for this one again. I have rid the world of sin. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That is, by that one offering, the full assurance of having faith in Jesus Christ, is it is in Jesus Christ. If you are oriented toward your behavior, if you are oriented toward your sin, if you are navel-gazing upon your own depravity, you have no hope. But that is all the history of humanity. But see, in this one sacrifice for sin, it says that he has offered a 
perfect offering for all time for those who are being sanctified. That is, a perfect sacrifice has been offered for all time. It is complete. And we are being in the process of entering into that perfection. That's it. It's not behavior. It's not works. It's not anything that could actually come against your assurance of faith. This is the whole point of baptism. Because we know that these waters symbolize, they clearly symbolize a cleansing. But boy, wouldn't it be wonderful to actually be clean? Wouldn't it be wonderful to actually be sinless? Yes. The only reason these waters work is they're connected to the man who perfected for all time a perfect offering to God. Those waters are connected to that. So it's not just water anymore. You truly are perfect if you can believe in what these waters are pointing to. See, he explains it this way. The covenant, particularly, um, is a perfect covenant. He says it's the new covenant. And so what he's trying to say is that if you just would understand Jeremiah 31, if you just understand the Old Testament prophecy of this new covenant that was to come, it would make sense. And so he quotes and says, The covenant which I made with them, declares the Lord, I will put the laws in their heart and write them on their mind, and I will remember their sins no more. Jeremiah 31 continues and says, No longer will each one say, Know the Lord, but they all know me. The prophecy goes on to say, And I will make a new covenant with them, not one like I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand out of the, out of the uh, empire of Egypt. Because they broke that one. So the new covenant is something that's written on the heart, where everyone knows the Lord, and it's one that cannot be broken like the old covenant was. Why? Because Jesus Christ completed it. It's not contingent upon our behavior. It's perfect. It's unable to be broken because there is a man, is real in you and I, who has fulfilled the thing. Perfect, perfect conviction of obedience. The newness is the newness in the priests and the ceremony, not in the community. That is, the Old Testament church and the New Testament church are essentially the same, just larger and broader. That is, everything God has been doing with people has not changed at all. It just extends now to the Gentiles in such a remarkable way by the power of the Spirit that there are billions of Christians in this age for a reason. Because the power of these promises, the power of the water, and the power of the table is backed by the power of the Spirit and the power of the Word. And it works. It really works. The church is conquering the world through water and bread. Not through swords and guns. That's normally not how things get conquered in the world. Because behind that is the powerful resurrected life of Jesus Christ who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. See, these ceremonies are only new because there's a new priest. But the community is the same. See, baptism is new because we are not fully sanctified yet. The Lord's Supper is a new ceremony because we are all moving the world to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The old covenant ceremonies are gone. Why? Because where there is forgiveness of sin, there's no longer an offering for sin, it clearly says. 
It is a new and living way. That is, not through the dead animals and the dead priests that could never really do anything. Jesus Christ is a new and living way because he is alive and he is a new priest who actually has changed the law. Hebrews 7.12 goes on to say, if there is a change in priesthood, it necessitates a change in law. There is a change in priesthood. Jesus Christ is the new high priest for the whole church. Therefore, the church has been given a new law, a new law of redemption, a new ceremony. The Lord's table. Baptism. And these are not just bread and wine. These are not just things we do to commemorate the Lord Jesus. This water is not just water in which we symbolize by ourselves the desire to come to Jesus. These waters are connected to the resurrected Christ. They are attended with promises that cannot fail. They're not like casting a vote for Jesus. This is Jesus who has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There's power in these waters if believed upon by faith. If you understand what these waters mean and what they symbolize and what they represent, the gospel, that gospel is the power for your salvation. This is the water that is ruling the world. So he describes it this way. Let us draw near with a true heart and the full assurance of faith. Having your hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and your bodies washed with pure water. Therefore hold fast your confession of hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That is, behind these symbols is a God who cannot lie. Consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, and to not neglect meeting together as the habit of some. That is, these symbols, baptism, is given to not your individual bathtub. It is given to the church. When it assembles together, there is a power there. The presence of God is there. The promises are attended there. That if they are believed upon through faith, they cannot fail. For he has perfected once for all. That is, your past sins, your future sins, your sins today, it does not matter. For he has perfected once for all, all those who are being sanctified. These waters meet. Whether you are being baptized as a believer whether you're being baptized as an infant, it does not matter. For these promises attend the one who has perfected once for all those who are being sanctified. Whether you are being baptized of a hardened conscience as an adult man converted to Christ, or whether you're being baptized as a mild infant who has never even grown a conscience to sin yet, it does not matter. Because your future sins and your past sins and your present sins are once for all offered by the single sacrifice for sin in Jesus Christ, who is the Alpha and Omega. See, these waters are a portal to time travel. There are a connection to the God who cannot lie. Therefore, if you say, oh, I used to be close to God. I used to be. But you don't understand. I had adultery one time and no one even talks to me anymore. I used to be close to God, but then I had this really big sin. I mean, it was what the Catholics would call a mortal sin. You don't understand. No. You don't understand baptism. That's exactly what he's saying, you see. You never can fall away if you understand what these waters mean. Is that you are cleansed by the symbol of it. 
and also reality for it being united to Jesus Christ. See, it is a visual symbol and a verbal symbol. Yes, of course, it's a visual symbol. Water, obviously, is a symbol for cleansing. But it's a verbal symbol for union. Union when you were five years old. Union when you were 20 years old. Union when you had that terrible sin that no one knows about. Yes. For Romans 6.3 says, You've been baptized into Christ. Union with Christ. Therefore, you've been baptized into his death. And you're united with him in his death. And therefore, you're united with him in his resurrection. And you would say, but no, you don't understand. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died and resurrected. And I wasn't there. Yes. And now you know the meaning of baptism. That if you understand these waters to be submerging into the time travel of God's redemption for all humanity, then yes, the sins you don't even know you will commit tomorrow are in that water. And you are cleansed because he's not doing it again. He has sat down, as verse 14 says, that he might once for all perfect those who are being sanctified. This is the baptism waters of Jesus Christ. The very waters that will rule the world as the flood waters did in the days of Noah. But there's an unexpected, if you would say, well, that makes me feel good. I like knowing all my sins are forgiven. There's this really unexpected turn where the man comes And he addresses them who are falling away with probably one of the scariest portions of all scripture. He says, if you go on sinning deliberately after knowing the truth, then there no longer remains any sacrifice for sin. Fear for expectation and judgment and fury and fire will only be for those to God who wants to consume his adversaries. You think, well, I don't want to be an adversary to God. He says, if anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses, how much worse the punishment for those who have trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the Spirit of grace. Remember Jesus Christ's warning to the Pharisees, do not blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. If you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, you can never be forgiven. We know him who said, vengeance is mine, and I will repay. And again, he says, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. You see what the church is? His people. The visible church is made up of unconverted, unregenerate, wicked sinners. Just is what it is. The church is full of unregenerate, wicked sinners who will eat from this table but never dine at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It is a mixed multitude. It has always been a mixed multitude. In Exodus 12, when the people of Israel came out of Egypt in the Old Covenant, it says in Exodus 12, 38, a mixed multitude came out. That is, those who were mixed in marriages. Some were 
of the way of Yahweh and some were of the way of Pharaoh and Ra and the gods of Egypt. They were intermarried. They were mixed. It wasn't all pure. It's not as though everyone who passes through the waters is a Christian. It's not as though we know, of course, that those who are baptized as children, little babies, will they have faith? That's the question you see. That's the whole point of the symbol. And of course, even those who are conscious adults who actually make a profession of faith in Christ fall away from Christ. It doesn't matter. There's nothing in the water. See, it is, what does the water mean? Will the water submerge the infant so he drowns and dies like those who died in the waters of the Red Sea, the Egyptians? Or will it only grace their head to cleanse their mind for the rest of their life? And will their breath stay in their lungs like it was with Noah on the boat? Or Israel who walked through the sea on dry land. The covenant symbol is always attended with blessings and curses. It is a trial by ordeal. Will you make it through the waters? Will you not? Just because you have the waters doesn't mean that you are cleansed by the waters. These waters could kill you, you see. They could drown you. God knows how to use water that way as well. So the symbol of it is what will you have? Will you forsake the assembly together? Do you not want to be near the waters of baptism? Do you have no heart for the reality that God has extended this ability for you to be cleansed? Then it is very hard to be given all this knowledge of the Holy Spirit, to be given all of these things that are spoken of and trample them underfoot and profane the blood of the covenant The point of baptizing children is that they are going to know so much about Jesus. And that is a beautiful thing. And that is a fearful thing. For you will always be judged on the level of your knowledge. So if you grow up inside the covenant, inside the waters, and you reject the new covenant of Jesus Christ, and trample underfoot the blood that was spilled? How else could you be saved? There is nothing left for you. He has already sat down and offered a single sacrifice for sin. You are to die without mercy. You are to drown as the Egyptians. You are to drown as the rest of the wicked world outside of the covenant household of Noah in that boat. But... Children of the covenant have been born in the boat. Children of the covenant know of the covenant. They know of the promises. They know how to stay dry in the wrath of God. They know a place to go, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so therefore, this symbol is nothing more than a beautiful means of grace. See the water for what it is. Trust your life to Christ for what it is. If you believe in these waters and what they represent, you're saved. For Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. There's power in that gospel. Yes. And how is that gospel mediated? Through the preaching of the church. How else? Through the images of baptism and Eucharist. The gospel is preached through visible words. And there's still power in that preaching. Therefore it is impossible to have God your father, not have the church your mother. Because the church has been given the gospel. And even the very visible images of the gospel attended by the power of the Holy Spirit. So therefore, that blessing of the covenant, that blessing of knowing that all your sins are gone 
that everything has been washed away. It only comes to those who lay hold of it by faith, trusting in Jesus Christ for who he is. It's been this way always. It's been this way always. Abraham, in closing with this, Abraham was promised to have a land. And when you read about it, you almost want to cry. It's beautiful. A land flowing with milk and honey. A land that sounds so sweet. Sounds like that garden that we lost. There is no sin or crying or tears or death. He wanted that land so bad. In Genesis 15, God promised him that land. And then the next chapter, Abraham says, Now, Lord, how can I know that I'll have it? I want conviction. I want full assurance of faith. I want to know that this is mine. I want to know that I will enter into that. How will you know you make it to the marriage supper of the Lamb? How will you know you truly have been baptized? That your conscience truly has been sprinkled clean? That is it. Romans 4, 11, Paul speaks about this and says, See, Abraham was given circumcision as a sign and a seal. That is, a confirmation that the promise will come. Abraham says, Lord, how can I know? And he says, oh, I promise you, you'll have it. Here's your sign, your visible word, circumcision, for you and all your children after you. If they will hold to what this is, if they will hold to what this symbol means, they will have the land. They believe, they will have it. So, of course, that's all baptism is, a sign and a seal. Perhaps the substance is delivered, and that depends upon your faith in Christ or not. You could have a diploma that you worked all your life for, signed and sealed by the faculty to say an education has been delivered. Or you could find a diploma in a garage sale and hang it on your wall. You'd still have the sign and the seal, but you wouldn't have the education that was delivered. But you see, this isn't anything we work for. This is a sign and seal that can even fall on covenant children that don't even know who they are yet. Because it's all of grace. It's more like a will and testament. Signed, sealed, notarized. Given to a small child, written up before they even know how to count. But eventually, an inheritance comes. A heart quickened by faith sees the water, sees the wrath, sees the cleansing, stands next to their children, holding their hands up in worship every Sunday, and realizes the Lord Jesus Christ is everything to me. They become the wealthiest person in the world. All the benefits of that sign and seal flipped over in a moment to theirs. Now they have the substance of the inheritance Though the parents signed the will and testament long ago, praying for the Spirit to come down and make the church true and the generations to come true to Jesus Christ. This is God's promise that we will inherit that land with our children and we will dine, after being cleansed, dine at that supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And my job pastorally is that every one of you who have names on a spreadsheet of mine called members of this church, 
I want to get you there. I want our visible church to be just as real as the invisible church. That none would fall away. So remember the baptism waters. And what it means to be cleansed or to be drowned. The wrath or the grace of God by trusting in Christ alone. Dear Father God, I ask Father that you would give us this grace. I ask Father that you would have us see the beauty of your Son in all of the things that you've done for us. We don't even know the documents you've signed in your blood. We don't even know the inheritance that yet is still ours. Oh, Lord, thank you for giving us the sign and the seal of these things. Father, please help us. Help me to be a faithful pastor. Help us to be a holy church. And Lord, we ask that your power would be among us for conversion, true transformation of the heart. In Jesus' mighty name that cannot fail,